Has your car ever looked like this? Uh, You're going on holidays and you try to squeeze everything in. Uh, Clothes, bedding, uh, things for the activities. And eventually it looks like this, but there's still more to fit in. And you're left deciding, do you put in the boogie boards or your middle child? Uh, When you're overloaded, when your car's full... When your hands are full, then you can't take, you can't receive anything else. Today, Jesus is asking us this question. Is your life too full? Is your life too full? Do you come to him with full or empty hands? What are you willing to let go of in order to take hold of him and his kingdom? In our passage today, we meet two people, two people who are very different from each other, who respond to Jesus in very different ways, and who the disciples respond to in very different ways. So let's meet them. Uh, The first are some parents and their little children. Uh, They want some of Jesus' time and attention, but the disciples had other ideas. So have a look in your Bible, Mark chapter 10, verse 13. So verse 13. Uh, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. Uh, Why do these parents want Jesus to place his hands on their children? It's probably not to do with healing. That's not mentioned. Uh, But they must recognize something special about Jesus, some kind of connection between him and God. And they want him to bless, to pray for, to acknowledge their little children. Uh, But the disciples disagree. They think Jesus has got more important things, more important people to deal with. Uh, At election time, there's the old tradition of politicians kissing babies. I think they do it because it looks good on camera. The politician may not be so photogenic, but a cute baby gets printed. But although they might be interested in babies when there's cameras around, they don't invite children to their fundraising dinners. Politicians want to be around people with money or power. Powerful people tend to give their time to other powerful people, people who are useful, who offer something, who can help them move forward. But not Jesus. Jesus welcomes little children, not because of what they can do for him, but because of what he has come to do for them. Verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them and blessed them. What does it mean to receive the kingdom like a little child? It doesn't mean to come with an innocent heart. Children don't have innocent hearts, as the parent of any two-year-old can tell you. No, receiving like a child, it's a picture of dependence. Children are entirely dependent and they have nothing to offer. 
They're dependent on their parents or guardians for food, shelter, safety. When a baby's hungry, all he or she can do is cry. They can't buy something to eat. They can't grow or harvest anything to eat. They are needy and they know it. They have empty hands, which means they've got plenty of ability to receive. Jesus says the only way to receive the kingdom of God is with empty hands, recognizing you have nothing to offer God. Now, is this the way you approach God? Now, before we move on to the next person who comes to Jesus, I want to pause and think about what Jesus says. Do not hinder them. I want us to think about that and our church, and things our church does. Because there are two things our church regularly does which, misunderstood, could be seen as hindering or excluding children. Uh, The first is having a children's program on Sundays, what's traditionally called Sunday school. Is having children go out to Sunday school, are we stopping children from coming to Jesus? Does this go against what Jesus said and what Jesus did? Well, it could be. If the reason for having a kids program on Sunday, if, if the reason is to get noisy, fidgety, distracting children out, so the adults, the important people, so we can listen to God's word being taught without distraction and fidgety and noise, if that's your motivation, well that sounds like the opposite of Jesus' attitude. Getting children out of the way because they're unimportant and a distraction. But if the reason for a children's ministry is we want to grow children in their faith, partnering with parents to nurture to maturity as disciples of Jesus, and as a church we're aiming to do this in an age-appropriate way, then I think we're doing what Jesus says, welcoming children as Jesus did. As followers of Jesus, we can have different opinions on the best way to disciple adults and children. Some are convinced that everything the church does always needs to include everyone of every age. Some think some things can be done in age-appropriate ways. Guess what? The Bible doesn't give us that kind of detail. It gives us the goal of children being welcomed in, growing up to know and love Jesus and being welcomed and valued. But this actually is deeper and and more foundational and more substantial than the particular programs we might run as a church family. Do you take an active interest in our children, how they're growing in Christ? How could you encourage them? Do you pray for them? How about getting involved with teaching them on Sundays? Or helping their parents to read the Bible with them at home. So that's the first thing, uh, children's discipleship. Uh, The second thing is the Lord's Supper, which we're going to share in today. Our practice here is to not encourage children to participate unless they're trusting in Jesus and walking in him. Now, why is this? And especially, why do we do this when we teach baptism is for children of believing parents? Now, this is a much bigger topic than we can do justice to today, but just briefly, the issue isn't age. 
Now, the issue isn't age. The issue is relationship, relationship to Jesus. We're not saying you must be X years old in order to participate in the Lord's Supper, but following 1 Corinthians 11.28 and the call to examine yourself, the Lord's table is for anyone who is able to examine themselves and answer, yes, I trust in the Lord Jesus and I'm living for him. I've come to Jesus with empty hands and received eternal life from him. It's not about age. It's about eating and drinking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Okay, that's uh, just two questions I reckon people might have as we hear what Jesus does. They might have raised many more things to discuss over morning tea, but we're going to leave those questions for now and get back to Jesus and the people he met. Uh, So Jesus has just spent time with these little children, welcoming them, receiving them. And as he continues his journey, a bloke runs up and asks the most important question. Verse 17, Mark 10, 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Last week we met some Pharisees who asked Jesus a question. That question was a trap. This bloke is the opposite. He's genuine. And as he falls on his knees and humbly calls Jesus good, you start to wonder whether he's like the children. Is he coming to Jesus dependent, empty-handed? Will he receive the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus, as always, knows exactly what's going on. He knows what's going on in this man's heart, and so he asks a piercing question about goodness. Verse 18, Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honour your father and mother. Now when Jesus says commandments, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. And this is probably the answer the man was hoping for, a pretty standard Orthodox Jewish answer. Though if you look closely, Jesus isn't quite quoting the Ten Commandments. First of all, there's not ten, is there? There's only six. He skips the first four and then goes for the last six, and he doesn't really do that either. If you compare this list to how the Ten Commandments are recorded in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, it's not quite the final six. The big difference is Jesus doesn't mention coveting, which is the last of the ten in the Old Testament. Instead, he talks about defrauding, which isn't one of the ten, though there are laws about ripping people off in the Old Testament. Why is Jesus not quite listing the Ten Commandments? I reckon he's doing it to reveal the man's heart. He wants him to show what he thinks of himself. He wants him to be able to say, Well, according to these commandments, I'm pretty good. I've got something to offer God. Verse 21. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. That Jesus looks at him and loves him, I think it means this fellow is telling the truth. He is morally outstanding. 
a morally upstanding man, the kind of person who would be given leadership in the community, leadership in the synagogue. He's worthy of respect, the kind of person you would look up to. He's trustworthy and reliable, and that's what people see when they look at him. But Jesus sees beyond the surface, and the next thing he says reveals what Jesus sees. Verse 21, one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Back in chapter 8, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Following Jesus isn't about the commandments. It's not about external conformity. It's about the heart, denying yourself, taking up your cross, following Jesus. And this man, this morally upright man is unwilling to do this. I wonder whether this is why Jesus didn't list the first four commandments. Commandment number one says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the first three commandments are all about God's place, God's unique number one place in his people's lives and hearts. Those commandments are summarized in the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. I wonder whether Jesus didn't mention those first four because then the man would have had to say, well, I haven't kept the commandments since I was a boy. Because he's loved money, wealth, and maybe power. He's loved all of them more than he's loved God. Listen up. This is one of the traps of moralism. The bloke told the truth that he kept the commandments. He was a good bloke, a moral man. But the problem with morality is you can be externally outstanding, outstanding, but inwardly completely self-absorbed. Inwardly, completely self-interested. By keeping the commandments, by keeping the commandments, being known for his honesty and keeping his word, by being respected and the kind of person everyone looked up to, it had been good for his wallet. He's the kind of man you want to employ. And if you've got him in your workplace, you give him a promotion too. If he was a bloke who was running his own business, you'd want to give him a contract because you know he'll follow through. His moral, his moralism, which looks like from the outside, people thought, well, the reason he's doing this is because he loves God. It's actually a cover for greedy self-interest. It's actually fed love of money. And so when he meets Jesus falls to his knees and asks about eternal life, the thing which he should see as more precious than anything else, when he asks the most important question of all, he cannot bear hear the answer because it's too, too costly. Unlike the little children, his hands are too full, 
too full of his reputation and standing in the community, too full of wealth, money and possessions, too full to receive the only thing that matters, the most valuable treasure, the kingdom of God. What about you? This man, as he walks away dejected, it raises the question for us. What do you love more than God? What do I treasure more than eternity? And what do I value more than my soul? It's a serious question because on a global and historical scale, most of us are wealthy. And as this bloke walks out of earshot, Jesus raises the stakes with his disciples. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples who were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus' point is, this man's response isn't unique. Wealth is a hindrance, not a help to receiving God's kingdom. Valuing things, loving money, makes it impossible to love God and receive his gift of eternal life. Wealth gives you the opposite of dependency. When you're wealthy, you think you're in control, so you don't need God. You're likely to have hands and heart full of things, full of things you love, so there's no space left to love God. And so humanly speaking, the chances of that change happening, the the chance of letting go of all you have so you can receive God's kingdom, well, it'd be easier to squeeze a camel through the thread hole of a needle. Now, we're not told why the disciples find this so hard to believe. Maybe they think if someone's being blessed materially by God, if someone's been given all sorts of good things from God, then anyone, surely of anyone, they would be the first people to love God and be so grateful and be welcomed into his kingdom. But once again, Jesus shows how the disciples still see everything upside down. They would turn away children and welcome in this moral man, but that's not the way of God's kingdom. Though there's more going on than this. Jesus is not saying, he is not saying that God is against those who are rich because with God, all things are possible. Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Uh, The sentence, all things are possible with God, Jesus doesn't say this when he's caught in a terrible storm. Jesus doesn't say this when he comes face to face with a legion of demons. Jesus doesn't say this when Jairus' daughter is at the point of death. In Jesus' mind, the greatest miracle is conversion. 
The greatest miracle is even a rich person, a person whose hands and heart are already full, even that person. God is able to change their heart and draw them into his kingdom. God can do the impossible. Now all this talk about wealth and giving up things causes Peter to respond and maybe you're wanting to respond too. Maybe Peter's worried he and the other disciples won't receive eternal life. But Jesus encourages the disciples, God will fill, God will fill those who come with empty hands now and into eternity. Verse 28. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. If you're a Christian, have you found this to be true? The promise of God's provision in this life, in most cases he does it through people, through the church. I think of the stories of Iranian refugees now living in Australia. Some fled Iran because... They were Christian. Others came to Jesus after arriving in Australia. Here they are in a foreign land with nothing to their name, unable to earn a living because of Australian government policy. And because of trusting in Jesus, their family and their community have rejected them. They've lost all their normal social supports. But here they are in a foreign land and they find a church, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers in Christ who find spare rooms or help with rent, who teach them English and help with all the legal processes. They've lost everything for Jesus and for the gospel, but they receive much more. Or I think about the person who becomes a Christian and there's no other Christians in their family, no one to model what it looks like to live for Jesus. But in church they find mothers and fathers, people who model faithfulness to Jesus in different areas of life. Have you known this to be true? It's a beautiful picture. Though Jesus isn't promising, life will be roses. In this life, it's provision with persecution. But in the age to come, in eternity, the promise of life. Is this worth giving up everything for? Is it worth letting go and coming empty-handed to Jesus? I look at the moral man, I think he's a warning for us. Many of us, maybe most, really are wealthy. Many of us, maybe most, like to think of ourselves as good people, that generally we do the right thing. 
Our hands are full. Our car is overloaded by what we think we bring to God. No space to receive what he offers. But in Jesus' kingdom, the last are first. The ones who come empty-handed are welcomed in. Jesus is serious. He wasn't playing games with the moral man. He's not playing games with you or me. Yes, entering the kingdom is free. For those who come with empty hands, depending on God, to such as them belongs the kingdom. But receiving the kingdom may cost you home, family, friends, livelihoods. It's worth it. He is worth it. But will you come with empty hands to receive everything from him? Let's pray. Father God, may you be working in us by your spirit. Please, by your spirit, do the impossible in us. Empty our hands and hearts of love, of money and wealth, that we might love you with all our hearts, mind, soul and strength. May being good, being respected and upright, not hardening our hearts to you. We praise you that you welcome little children. Please help us learn from children, from their faith and dependence. Help us to not hinder children from coming to you. But be a church that partners with parents to see children growing up in the love and knowledge of Jesus. And we ask all these things in his name and for his glory's sake. Amen.